So today we are continuing this series called Soul Stirrings, Reawakening to All That is Sacred. I mentioned that uh, this particular photograph is from Opatia, Croatia, uh, where Esti and I visited a number of years ago. And it has kind of all the elements. It has the sea and it has the mountains and it has the villages and it has an individual looking over this, the Lady of the Sea, that is inviting people safely into the harbor. That's kind of the imagery behind uh, that statue in the city. So we've talked a little bit about how our soul has echoes, soul echoes. Uh, we recall things by our memory, they become nostalgia, they become a part of who we are. And we were talking a little bit about how all of a sudden things kind of come back to mind and when we have these sacred echoes, uh, these things are something that often overwhelm us and they are things that are very sentimental as well. So today I want to build on not only that, but I also want to build upon the fact that we also have these um, sacred moments in this sacred earth that we live on and we talked last week about how we are to honor the earth that God has given to us as a gift. But today, what we're going to do is talk about sacred experiences. Now, this one here can be a little, uh, a little bit fearful in the souls of some people. If I was to say to you the word mysticism, would you have a positive or a negative reaction to the word mysticism? Now, sometimes people will get a queasy feeling in their stomach if they hear this word mysticism because there's so much on TV about the paranormal, okay? And that's a fearful thing to think about uh, the human interacting with some type of supernatural expression. And yet we're intrigued. A lot of times we want to watch. Um, sometimes if a person begins to tell a story about how God told them something, we kind of look up at the sky and we begin to think, does this person need a psychological evaluation of some sort? They're hearing voices. Um, maybe a better expression of the idea of mysticism or being a mystic is the idea of an experience with God, and it can be in a variety of different ways. When you think about it, if we were living at the time that God appeared to Ezekiel, or Moses, like the two passages of Scripture I just read, we might think that they're off their rocker, right? Yet, because it's in the Bible, we just accept it, right? We believe it, and we go, okay, this is something that God did then, but I'm not so sure it's something that He does now. And I'm already making some of you uneasy by talking about this, right? Does God kind of appear to people or speak to people? You're going to see what I mean in a moment. But I can understand why sometimes people were freaked out by some of the prophets who did some very strange things, especially in the Old Testament. And these things sometimes were accompanied by supernatural expressions. And so people wanted to get rid of these prophets because they were uncomfortable around them. And yet, these people were not smoking bad weed. Uh, you know, it's legal now in some states, but um, it might be the perfect time for mysticism, I don't know. But, no, they weren't on drugs. Somehow they had an encounter, 
they had an encounter with God. And it's not unusual because there is a thing called Jewish mysticism. And the Jewish mystics emphasized an awareness of God even in the middle of everyday routine. Being alert to the fact that God is involved in our lives. It's not like he just created this sacred earth that we talked about and left it to run on its own, that God does intervene, that God does interact in profound ways. But I think sometimes we relate that to religious things only. In other words, oh, I felt God the day I was baptized. I had an awareness that God was with me and strengthening me and giving me the courage to be baptized. Or I really felt a special presence of God when at the funeral of my wife or my husband or my mom or my dad, somehow there was a strength there that I didn't have on my own. Or a more happier time, the awareness that God is putting his blessing upon a family member who's getting married, that type of thing. But one of the keys to this awareness of the sacredness of the moment is to realize that God is involved in the course of our moments. Think about this for a moment. Life is made up of moments. It's one moment after another, and as we add those moments together, at the end of it, we have both a life and a legacy for the next generation. So today, I want to talk about some sacred experiences, and I just want to give you an illustration of the burning bush experience giving to us kind of a template of what to encounter when we are aware that God is involved in the moments of our lives. So, you know, I've been a pastor and a professor for a long time, so I use a lot of alliteration sometimes. It just happened to fall together like this. But maybe our burning bush experience is not some type of physical encounter as we read out of Exodus chapter 3. Maybe it's something like inspiration, to see something that we have never seen before. In other words, Moses is walking this path. He's been by this bush many times before, but somehow he notices that there's this bush that's on fire, and it's not being consumed. And that draws him in. He's never seen that before. He's seen plenty of bushes on fire, but the fire burns out. Or maybe it's information, uh, learning something that we have not known before. So in the case of Moses, what is it that he learns out of this situation? Number one, God wants to use him to lead the people out of Egypt. He's to be a national deliverer. Now, he'll kind of resist that, but it's new information. He thought, if you remember the whole Moses story, that he thought he's going to die on the backside of the desert because he killed an Egyptian. He was in flight and in exile, and yes, he gets married, and he's tending his father-in-law, Jethro's flock, but he thought that's his lot in life. Year after year after year, it's the same routine. The flock needs to be fed, the flock needs to be protected, so on and so forth. But here he has a new piece of information. This information is God is aware that you've been laboring on the backside of the desert all these years, and now, Moses, I have a calling for you. Or maybe it's the information that he learned that God has a name, and this name is Yahweh. 
And this name means to be. That's a strange name, isn't it? To be. Hi, what's your name? To be. Well, he begins to understand this God that he's meeting is being identified with something very specific. To be means to be present. To be means he's going to step into the future with us. Or how about involvement? Experiencing something never felt before. You know, sometimes we get involved by uh, some either passion or invitation of some sort. And when we do and we get involved, we begin to see maybe we have some talents that we never thought we had. Maybe we have certain passions that we never thought were there. Or how about imagination? Seeing something that other people can't see. In other words, Moses had his own doubts. Who am I that you'd want to send me? But no, I'm the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And we're going to go out of Egypt. And I want you to imagine that, Moses. I want you to imagine your people being freed. Or how about intervention? That's what this whole text in Exodus 3 is about. God is going to intervene. Moses is going to be empowered by something beyond his own ability. In other words, Moses will continue to object. And in chapter 4 of Exodus, God gives to Moses a staff. And God says, throw that staff on the ground and it becomes a snake. He picks it back up, it becomes a staff. And all this is to give him reassurance. Another thing is um, that he was uh, an individual that would put his hand inside an object and it would come out leprous. Read this in Exodus 4. And then he put it in again and it comes back out whole. Freaky, isn't it? Really strange stuff. But all of this is to assure Moses that the intervention on behalf of his people is not on his shoulders alone. Does that make sense? That God's going to be with them. God's going to walk with him. That God is going to lead him and guide him. And then how about insight? Seeing something with new eyes which was previously hidden. You know, some of us have been in the faith for many years. And some of us have began to reshape our faith a little bit. We've seen some things about the misuse of faith in our world, and we begin to reshape it. Sometimes it goes by the name of uh, deconstruction and reconstruction. Maybe a better term to use is reframing our faith in light of the new insight that we have or the new eyes that we look with because we are older than uh, we were obviously when we came to faith, and now we are someone that takes into the whole our experience, and as a result of that, what we find is that we have a different way of looking at something. Now, another thing that's quite interesting in the Exodus uh, 3 text. So Moses is out in the wilderness, and he comes to a mountain called Horeb, Right? And it says that after they are delivered out of Egypt, they're going to worship God on this mountain. Well, what we find in the book of Exodus, after the Passover, and after they are delivered, where do they go? To Mount Sinai, right? So Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai appear to be the same, which there's some fascinating little things that are going on here. The writer of the book of Exodus is intentionally making some connections by the location, 
Mount Horeb, later will be Mount Sinai because what we find, the Hebrew word for bush that's on fire here is sene. Sounds like what? Sinai, right? Sounds like Sinai. This burning bush will become a burning mountain, figuratively speaking, and it will be there that God will meet Moses and give the Mosaic Covenant. Now, a part of this information in the book of Exodus that Moses will receive is how to build a tabernacle. This is a portable device that they will take with them in their journeys through the wilderness. So they will set up a tabernacle, they will take down a tabernacle, and the template itself will be such that the construction of the temple that Solomon will build will be patterned after the tabernacle that is told to Moses. But why is this a portable device? Well, they're going to be on the move. And if you fast forward into the book of Numbers, you'll understand that after they do some reconnaissance in the new land, there are 12 spies, 10 of them come back and say, no way, they're too big, they're too strong. Only two of them, Joshua and Caleb, comes back and says, no, God is with us. But the people listen to the majority report, right? That's kind of the way we are as human beings. We always listen to the majority report. But God is going to be with them. Go on. Go on, Joshua says. Go on, Caleb says. But they turn back. And while they are wandering in the wilderness, they will set up this tent-like structure. And it will be there that the priesthood uh, will go in and offer sacrifices and so forth. But you know what's fascinating when they're on the move? God's presence was felt. There was a cloud by day and a what? Fire by night. You see there's connections that are being made here. And so this fire is something that's to renew them and to cause them to have the strength to take the next step forward, right? Well, God says to Moses, my name is Yahweh. My name is Yahweh. Now, there are other names of God, depending upon who the writer is in the Old Testament, but this name Yahweh becomes the consecrated name for the nation of Israel. And it has four consonants, yod Hey vav Hey in Hebrew, yod Hey vav Hey. Uh, there are no vowels in Hebrew, interestingly enough. There's only consonants. So yod Hey vav Hey becomes the name of God, which is translated to be, to be. But what Jewish scholars have understood is this name sounds a lot when it's pronounced correctly, not by some American, uh, when it's pronounced by Jewish scholars, yod he vav hey, it sounds like breathing, the Jewish scholars say. And I think you put all this together and you begin to see that God is always present and he is as close as your next breath. I don't know what tomorrow holds for us. You don't know what whole is held together for tomorrow either. But here's what I do know. This God that revealed himself to Moses, this one who said, my name is Yahweh, this one who is always present, this one who is always involved, 
this one who sound, whose name sounds like breathing is as close as our next breath. Well, if I believe that to be true, maybe in the course of the everyday, in the course of your work life, in the course of your family, in the course of your travels, wherever it may be, maybe there is some inspiration or information or involvement or imagination or intervention or insight that God continues to provide for us today if we keep our eyes open. If we keep our eyes open and we feel the premonitions that God will often place inside our soul. You know, God works in a variety of different ways, in a variety of different settings, and in a variety of different people. And we cannot prescribe it, we cannot control it, we can't even predict it. But I think we know it when we see it, or when we feel it. And so maybe, just maybe, we need to enter the mystic, and we will not have the experiences like these individuals. Think about this for a moment. Moses hears a voice from a burning bush. Ezekiel sees the heavens open and has a vision of God. Mary is visited by an angel and is told that she is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Don't you think that might have freaked her out a bit? Peter sees a sheet coming down from heaven in the book of Acts with animals on it, and a voice says, take, eat. Don't call unclean what God calls clean. Paul himself was caught up in a vision to heaven in 2 Corinthians 12. You know, I'm wondering in our day and age, a day of reason, a day of science, a day of uh, logic, whether we would have had all of these individuals committed. You need to go to Laurelwood for a while. You need to see a counselor. You need to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist. You're off base here. Yet, what we find is these type of experiences might just absolutely scare us to death if we thought that it was God that was going to do it in our life. But God is willing to meet us where we are, and He doesn't want to scare us. Do you know what the, the most numerous command in the Bible is? Over 450 times. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. So maybe we have to ask a question. How does God meet us? I want to tell you a story. This is our dog, Toby. Um, he uh, was recently put down about two months ago. He's a Shih Tzu that we had when the boys were little, and uh, he lived 17 and a half years. That's a long time for a little Shih Tzu. And his health began to deteriorate all the way back to at Christmas time. We couldn't let go. You know what I'm talking about? Your pet is part of your family. And we kept putting it off and putting it off, and he couldn't get up and down steps, and he was having trouble holding his back end up when he needed to go to the bathroom, and he's losing control of a lot of different things. He's losing weight, and you could feel the spine on his back, and... And I looked at Esty and I said, it's time. And it just tore us apart when we had to take him into the vet. 
And we were both just bawling in the vet's room there when we held him and the shot was given. And um, we needed just some comfort. I want you to notice something. Down at the bottom of this is this stuffed animal. It's a little bit different color. This is blue. This is gray. But there's a story behind this. So he loved this stuffed animal from the time he was a puppy. And we got it, and he absolutely wore it out. Now, my son has a golden retriever and can rip one of these things apart in about five minutes. But a Shih Tzu, he loved it, and he took it with him wherever he went. He wore that out, so we bought him a second one. And over the years, he wore that one out as well. And when you come through the door, he would go find this animal, and he would bring it. And when he was younger, he used to like me to throw it. And he'd chase it, and he would bring it back. Well, after the second one wore out, we couldn't find it anymore. We looked and looked and looked online, looked in the stores, the pet stores, couldn't find it. And so we figured, well, they must have stopped making it. So we put him down, and the next day we go to Marshall's. And we're about ready to leave the store. And we look over on one of the end caps, and here's this stuffed animal. We gave this stuffed animal, the, oh, I didn't. Esty gave this stuffed animal the name Cynthia. I don't know where it came from. But on this end cap, there was five of these. And Esty just broke down in the middle of the store. She goes, Cynthia! And she bought four out of the five. And she gave one to Beth, because Beth, in our home group, always used to, Toby was her buddy, okay? Gave one to our younger son, Brent, because he had wanted a dog, and he was the one that prompted us to get Toby. And then she took one to work, and then this one is for our home. I really do believe that somehow that was a gift that we needed at the moment. So <laughs> Esty bought four out of the five, and the next day she says, well, maybe I should go get that fifth one. She goes up, and it's gone. And she said, is this crazy? I think... Somehow God knew I needed this. I don't know if that's crazy or not, but all I know is we couldn't find this thing for seven years, and all of a sudden it showed up the day after we put our dog down. And we see that as a gift. That won't mean much to most of you. You don't know this dog. You don't know his quirkiness. You don't know how much he was at the part of our family, but it's an illustration of how God sometimes gives to us these sacred experiences in life 
that sometimes gives us strength, sometimes gives us insight, and in this case gave us some comfort. You have those stories. You have those experiences. I don't know what they are, but you have to kind of dial into them and think about them. So I want to give to you another illustration, a second example. So this past week, I was reading a blog uh, from Dr. Pete Enns. If you don't know who Dr. Pete Enns is, I encourage you to read some of his books. It's great. He and Jared Bias do the Bible for Normal People podcast, which I listen to religiously each week. And he wrote in this blog from a couple years back, and um, he was talking a little bit about how he became more aware of white privilege. I want to read this to you. It's a little bit lengthy, but bear with me, because I think it kind of shows our burning bush moments. He says, and I quote, My formative years were the 1960s and early 70s. I've known about white privilege for most of my life, that as a white male, I did not face the everyday challenges that black men do. But I grew up in a white world and only saw my privilege from a distance. My town and my high school were 99.99% white, but we read Dick Gregory's Nigger, an autobiography, and John Howard Griffin's Black Like Me in high school because my English teachers genuinely meant well. But the reality of life without white privilege was not really something I was forced to witness in my everyday life. It was out there somewhere, like people going to bed hungry or sleeping on park benches. I knew about it, but I didn't see it. Awareness of white privilege at a distance was also the norm through most of my adult years. Whatever black presence there was at my college, seminary, graduate school, and first teaching position covering 30 years from my late teens to late 40s was minimal and largely assimilated into the dominant white culture. I'd love to be able to say that I saw through it all and rose above it, but I didn't. I was aware I knew the racial divide was real, but from a distance. I have believed my whole life that all people are created equal and that discrimination on the basis of skin color was simply wrong, but from a distance. I don't think my experience is that different from many white Americans going on with their lives looking up now and then to see the racial disparity, feeling bad about it, and then moving along. Looking back, it is clear to me that things, uh, to me that things would have stayed just as they were for me were it not for something that happened to me, something thrust upon me, out of my control, something to begin bridging the distance. In the not-too-distant past, I found myself spending a few days as one of several speakers at a conference in a rural southern setting. Many of the speakers had not, uh, had not met before, but we got on, got on great and decided to have pizza uh, together. Two of us were in charge to go get beer and, and me and another speaker, a black male. We got to the liquor store and headed for the door. Standing outside was someone we had met earlier, so I stopped for a moment to talk with her. As my friend entered alone, I glanced over and I saw the two white employees visibly stiffen, glance at each other, and lock on him as if 
tracking game. That alone was a new and very unsettling experience. I remember thinking to myself, wait a minute, he's black. We're in the South. This is a liquor store at night. I've seen enough movies and news footage. So I further said to myself, oh, shoot, edited, he puts in parentheses. What do I do? I wasn't sure. I just knew I should get in there. As I opened the door, both employees turned to me with obvious, instant, and absolute relief that I wasn't black. They might as well have held up a sign that said, thank God, a white guy. I felt in my bones, man, I'm in the middle of something here. What do I do? My friend, however, was just going about his business, paying no mind to the fiery stares like this was normal for him. So I made eye contact with both of the other white guys, smiled and said a cheery hi. And then I walked right over to my friend. I put my arm around him, left it there as we walked up and down the aisles. I reflected on that moment a lot since. It dawned on me that this was the first time I really saw and felt white privilege. I have never in my life walked into any kind of store and had employees stop what they are doing, stare, and begin plotting what to do about me because of the color of my skin. This is not my friend's friend's experience, and I finally saw it. Race is something he has to think about every day. White privilege means that my race only comes up now and then. I can go days, weeks, years without thinking about what obstacle in my life will pop up because of my white skin. For my friend, his race is a factor he needs to consider with virtually every move he makes. I certainly understand that not every white person is born with a silver spoon in their mouth. White people are not immune from scrapping and clawing their way to get a job, put food on the table, get decent medical care, and so forth. I could tell stories, in fact, of my German immigrant parents who were very much taken advantage of and had obstacles thrown in their path because they had very thick accents. They both worked their you-know-what's off, but life was always a struggle. I have memories of my mother walking through grocery stores with a few coins in her hand looking for something to put on the table or my father's sandwich the next day. Many white people have very hard lives, to be sure but not because they are white. That's the point. In America, white people have an advantage from birth. Amid other sorts of struggle, race is not one of them. Some of you reading this might think that I am stating the obvious. I agree. I'm breaking no ground, offering no brilliant new insight, but white privilege is not obvious to all. Some vehemently deny it altogether. Others, like me, see it only from a safe distance. White privilege can be kept civil, fly under the radar, but it is the soil that allows white, white supremacy, systemic racism, bias courts, and obscene violence to take root. I wrote this because I want to do something from my quiet little corner of the world to help. I'm hoping that some of you who read this will pause for a moment to see the truth of white privilege and in Jesus' name move beyond awareness of it to owning it and be open to opportunities to do something about it. So I think that was a great blog that he wrote. And basically, he was talking about his burning bush. It was a burning bush moment. And this sacred experience that he had opened his eyes in ways life did not before. So over the course of our lives, we might be aware of some burning bushes that God has brought our way. 
be thankful for them. They are sacred experiences. And sacred experience are those moments that count. They count because of who they make us to be. So all I'm trying to do today is to make you aware that they happen. But I also want to caution you, this doesn't happen every day. Keep in mind that sacred experiences are infrequent. If we expect them to come easily, we will be disappointed. Most sacred experiences are subtle, and it's not an audible voice. Think premonition. Think of soul stirring. It's not a voice in your head. It's kind of a movement in your heart. So I trust that you move forward, keeping your eyes open and keeping your spirit open to a burning bush experience because it might just change who you are for the better. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, thank you for our time in your word and thank you for the illustrations of story that give to us the opportunity to grow, to mature, to stretch. And I pray, Father, in these soul-stirring moments that we have in our lives, that we will not ignore them, we'll sit up and take notice, and allow you to do a wonderful work that only you can do. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me, would you please, as we, as we close with the benediction. So, <clears throat> most of you know the Ecclesiastes chapter 3, there's a time and a season for every activity under heaven, a time to be born, time to die. I found something that was... Uh, rewritten a little bit more contemporary out of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and that's what I want to use for our closing today. For everything there is a season, very little is as simple as good or bad. It is more often a question of who and of when, a why or a how. There are times to birth new things, there are times to welcome death, there are times to plant seeds for those to come, and times for harvesting the long labor of others. There are times when destruction is necessary, or at least unavoidable, and there are times when healing is possible. There are times to create art and times to tear it down. There are times, uh, there are days rather, where only weeping will do, others for laughing. Some days we can only mourn, others we dance. We ebb and flow our way in community. Sometimes we long to be in the arms of another, and other times we need the intimacy of solitude. There are times for seeking a way through the impossible and other times for accepting our losses. There's a time to hold on and a time to let go. There are times when some of us need to be silent and times when the rest of us must speak. Love has its time and hate has its place. Conflict must be accepted and peace welcomed in due time. May we listen our way into and out of each season with wisdom as our guide forcing nothing outside of its time, receiving everything for what it is, trusting love's companionship, laboring toward liberation together. Amen. I hope you have a great week, everyone. So great to see you, and we'll hope to see you again soon. Have a good day.